now it's time for the sermon. <laughs> you all know the drill, don't you? <laughs> we do this every Sunday, uh, every weekend. We, we gather, and, uh, and we have these wonderful people to help us take and unclutter our mind from all the junk that we bring with us to church and the distractions, and they help us dial in and focus through music. And then someone comes up and welcomes us and lets us know what's going on, puts it in context. We get a chance to put some, uh, to, to give our offering to God. And then we have a sermon. And typically, a sermon is either uh, the next section of the Bible that we're working our way through and learn about that. Uh, it, but usually, it, it's, it's how to take what, what God teaches us in His Word and our relationship with Him to have better relationships and, and live a better life. And that's what we typically do. But every once in a while, every once in a while, you have to have a sermon that reminds us why we even are here, why there even is a church, why we carve out this time, and this is going to be one of those sermons. And because of that, I just want to tell you in advance that I'm going to be asking you to make some, uh, some decisions before you're done here. And what I want to do is I want us to spend some time looking at a couple of stories within a story. Uh, it's, it's things that happen against the backdrop of something so huge that it's, that it's easy for these stories to go unnoticed. This happens all the time. You know, an event takes place that's so overwhelming and it grabs the focus of so many people that things can happen in the middle of it that we didn't see. For instance, as I, as I look at the crowd, and I'm sure if I was in the different venues, there's some people there that I could walk up to you and say, uh, how old were you, what grade were you in, and what was going on when you found out that President Kennedy had gotten shot? And you would be able to tell me exactly what happened. When, when, when President Kennedy was killed in Dallas, the world's televisions all turned on simultaneously, and they were focused in on Dallas and on Washington, D.C., and what was happening. That same day he was killed, C.S. Lewis died. The great British thinker who has framed so much of our understanding of our faith, the writer of mere Christianity, the author of screw tape letters, uh, the, the, the Narnia tales, he died, nobody noticed, because the, 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 this, this big event was so huge. On August 31st of 1996, Princess Diana was killed in a car wreck in Dallas, uh, excuse me, in, in Paris, in Paris, and, and, and once again, everybody turned on their television sets, and she, her body was brought to London, and we started watching that huge mountain of flowers grow in front of Kensington Palace, and we wondered what was going on down at the other end of the park there in Buckingham Palace with, the, with Queen Elizabeth and her ex-husband, uh, Diane's ex-husband, Prince Charles, and there was so much drama going on there, but and for a whole week up until that funeral, everybody was watching the television about Diana. A couple days after that, Mother Teresa died. Nobody noticed. God slipped this incredible, wonderful lady out of side door of time. These things happen. And so, uh, but, but, but to be honest, these, these, these events that I'm talking about, they're, they're more coincidental events. They, they're not really tied directly to the main event. But every once in a while, there's some backstories that are happening inside that main event. And backstories are like subplots to the big story. Hemingway talked about backstories. He said they're like the part of the iceberg that's underwater that you don't see. A typical iceberg, it, it, about only about an eighth of it is above the water, and that other seven eighths of it, it uh, kind of provides the ballast for what's up there. And, and, and that's what these stories that we're going to look at do uh, in, in the Bible story that we're going to look at. But it's not just any Bible story. It's the epicenter story 
of all time. It's an event that forever changed the world. And what, I want to, what we're talking about is when God's son, who, who had come here and taken him on, on, on human flesh, he went to a cross, climbed up on a cross, and he gave his life to solve a, 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 a problem that all of us had created but we couldn't fix on our own. This event was and still is the turning point of history. Everything pivots around it. In fact, in its aftermath of the death, burial, and, and, and ultimate resurrection of, of Jesus, the medieval scholars felt like, well, time started over. The keepers of the Julian and the Gregorian calendars decided to start the clock over. That's why the year that we're talking in has A.D. after it, Anno Domini. This event explains all the churches that are all over the world. Some of them have been, been, been there for hundreds of years. Darcy and I, this, this uh, spring and summer, we've been over for over a month in Eastern Europe ministering over there. And this is the areas where they tried to snuff out Christianity, and yet churches are everywhere. This explains why there are millions of crosses hanging around necks right now. The most popular piece of jewelry is a cross. This thing changed everything. And how you and I choose to respond to what happened in this epicenter event of history determines everything about us. It determines who we truly are. It determines the kind of life we live and it determines our ultimate destiny after we die. Well, two interesting people play a real brief role in this story, in the middle of this divine drama, and it'd be easy to gloss over them as incidental, but God doesn't waste words in the Bible, and he certainly doesn't use people as props in the Bible. These two people played a vital role in God's unfolding drama of redemption. And their backstories actually bring incredible meaning and clarity to the overarching story of what was happening on Calvary that Friday morning. The first backstory is about a thief. We don't know his name. Don't know anything about his family. He might have come from good stock and decided to go rogue and break his parents' heart and live a prodigal life. Or he might have come from a, a, a long line of criminals. We don't know. Don't know what he stole, but whatever it was, Rome felt like it deserved the harshest punishment. And there's, a, there's different words that could be used out of the Greek language for thief. There's like a word that talks about like a person, like a burglar, comes in when you're not there and steals. They didn't use that word. All the gospel writers use the same word, and it's, it's about an armed robber. It's the person that, that, that comes on you with force, and he's willing to use that force against you to take your stuff. And so be, besides being a thief, if he was armed and people resisted him, there's, a, there's also a chance that he was a murderer. But here's some things we can be pretty certain of. We can be pretty certain that he was Jewish. Because Rome used crucifixion to keep the people that they subjugated in line. This was the, 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 the punishment they, they, they tended to... to to use on, on those people. And, and, and as such, he would be familiar with Israel's history because Israel's history was a part of their dialogue uh, all, all the way through. Therefore, he would know the Ten Commandments, even though he decided to ignore number eight and possibly number six. And there's a good chance that he was oblivious to all that had been going on in Jerusalem because this was quite a week in Jerusalem, if you know what was going on. And in fact, every spring we celebrate the Passion Week, starting with, with Palm Sunday when Jesus made his triumphal entry. But by, by that Thursday night, the, the, the forces... The, 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 the political and religious forces of Jerusalem were able to turn the tide against him and, 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 and bring him up on trumped-up charges to get crucified. 
So he was oblivious to that. Um, but there's something else he did know when he got up that morning. One thing he did know, he knew he was going to die. Now, very seldom does someone get up in the morning and know they're going to die that day, but he knew it. And he knew before he was going to die, he was going to be tortured. There was another thief there. We don't know whether they were partners in crime. They may, may have just been two men, you know, scheduled for execution. And, and, and there's no indication they had any knowledge of Jesus prior to this time. But once they got there at 9 o'clock when they were all assembled there and they were starting to nail them down to their crosses and put them in position, they could learn some things about Jesus pretty fast. And this, and this, and this, this uh, particular thief could, could just by observation figure out some things real fast. First of all, Jesus showed up in pretty bad shape. It had been 24 hours since he had slept. He'd been up for, for a whole day. And that day was a very taxing day. At the end of that day, he had his last dinner with his disciples. And then, then they went to the garden. That's where the thugs came and got him and took him over to the Sanhedrin. And they, they put him on this, this goofy trial. They took him over to Pilate with, with false charges. He took him over to send him to Herod. Herod sent him back to Pilate. Then they scourged him. And this scourging just about killed him. And then he put this crown of thorns on him. So he showed up just about dead there that morning. He could see that. And, and he, he also could figure out something else about him because they put a sign over his, his, on the top of his cross that says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews, written in Latin, Greek, and Aramaic. Now, now, the way he's configured, he may not have been able to see it from where he was, but he could clearly know what was on there because it was a point of contention by the religious leaders that were there. They didn't like the wording. They wished that Pilate would have said, he, he claims to be the king of the Jews. Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. But there's something that happened right away uh, when they were put up and dropped into position that really started working on his heart. Because Jesus said something that no one in that situation would ever say. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There was a large crowd that had gathered, and it became clear to these thieves that they weren't there to see these guys die. They were there about Jesus. And this crowd took on a mob demeanor right at the outset. And along with the religious leaders started hurling insults at Jesus and deriding him. And this probably kept up for up to two hours from 9 o'clock to close to 11 o'clock. They kept it up. Look at, some, uh, look at how, how Mark records this. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying he saved others. He can't even save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe him. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Did you catch that? Look at how Matthew records this in, in, in chapter 27. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Robbers, plural. Jesus had absorbed all of this in silence, other than that statement about, Father, forgive them, these clueless people, they have no idea what they're involved in here. He had not said a word, and, they had, and he had hung there in incredible agony, being tortured on the cross, as well as being insulted, and he had not said a word, and some of those insults were coming from the men on each side of him. 
But during the 11 o'clock hour, all this had been working on one of these thieves. And probably for the first time in his sorry life, he started looking at this thing through a whole different lens. A lens that wasn't about himself. And, and, and something amazing happened, and, 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 and it, 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 it launched out of a back and forth between this one thief and the other thief. Look, look at this. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at Jesus saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So this guy was still digging into Jesus. But then this other thief, our backstory thief, he came at him. He rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. I want to put three words up there. Three words that I think define the process that this thief went through. A process that every one of us in this room have got to go through before we take our last breath. He showed humility, he acknowledged the obvious, and then he put his faith in that. Humility is the pathway to gaining God's grace. In James chapter 5, verse 6, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And this was a proud, arrogant, vile man. And for once in his life, he swallowed that pride. He recognized himself for what he was. I am a sorry criminal. I'm getting exactly what I deserve. But this, this person's something different. And so he showed that humility. He, and you can see it by that th thing. He, feared, he, he asked the question, do you not fear God? Do you don't fear him? Listen, I think there's a huge difference between believing in God and fearing him. Lots of people say they believe in God, but they make little or no place for him in their ongoing lives. But the Bible says in Psalm 111.10, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So if we want to actually exercise wisdom in life, it's not going to happen unless we start from the starting point of a condition of fearing God. I grew up uh, most of my uh, youth on the Chesapeake Bay. My parents moved there when I was a young kid from Pennsylvania. We lived in the Annapolis area, and so we, had, we were very close to the bay. And, and so when I was 12 years old, I had a speedboat. All my brothers had speedboats. And, and because if you, if you understand how the tributaries of the Chesapeake work, you can get just about any place in a boat that you can in a car. So we were mobile fast. And, and, and we had a lot of fun. But my dad had one overriding rule that he wanted to make sure we always obeyed when it came to that boat. He says, if you're out there in that bay and, you, and the wind whips up and you start to see it white capping, get off the bay. Get off of it right away. Find our river and get into our dock and tie up. If you can't get to our river, if you can't get in, find the nearest shore, get off the bay. If you I remember saying, if you have to pull up on an island, and you're there all through the night in the storm, and we're at our wits end worried about you, and we find you alive in the morning, get off of the bay. He was teaching us to fear the bay. He said, this is a massive body of water. Don't take it for granted. Don't assume that, that, that you, you can overwhelm it. It's huge. Respect it. Now, we loved the bay. We loved it. 
We would swim in it, and we'd ski on it, and I'd fish in it. I loved the bay, but I was taught to also fear the bay. And, and God needs us to, we, we, we get miles ahead when we start with a, that healthy fear of God. Let me give you four things that would define a, a person that fears God. And, and, and it means that, that, that you defer to him for your decisions. It, it, and you, and, and it means that you make sure that your priorities submit to him. It means that you're trusting him as your primary focus. And it means that living in obedience to him brings you joy. Now, I just gave you a checklist, and you can easily from that decide real quickly whether you fear God or you just love God. And, and love gives us the convenience to put him in a compartment and only defer to him when we want to. It says, it says that you defer to him for your decisions. You make sure your priorities are submitted to him, that trusting him is your primary focus, and you take delight and joy in obeying him. Therefore, you don't enjoy disobeying him. That's fear of God. Well, he, this thief humbled himself before God, and he acknowledged that Jesus was something different. He figured out he is a king, and I figure his kingdom isn't of this world, but I think he can take me there. And then he believed in him. He exercised faith in him, and he said, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? He says, today, I'm telling you, you're going to be with me in paradise. I'm telling you today. Now, he teaches us a wonderful lesson, and that's the first thing in your, your, your um outline in that, and this is something you really got to make sure you get, is that you're never so bad you can't have a Savior. No matter how much you've sinned, and some of you come here, and we don't know your stories, but some of us have things that just haunt us, things that no one ever knows about, awful things that we've done that just, just make us feel so awful, and we think, how could God ever extend love and mercy and forgiveness to me, and yet here was this thief, and he sure did. This thief was the bottom rung of life's ladder. But look what he shows us. He shows us that you're never too far from God. He shows us that our sins are never too great for God to forgive. I mean, he had made a, a whole long series of bad choices. He had, he had hung out with some awful people. He had decided to put, wrap his arms around very poor values. Get this. He insulted God to his face. Now listen, I think we all curse God in ways that we don't realize unwittingly, but we've never done it to his face. He did it to his face. I mean, it was basically the equivalent of him flipping Jesus off to his face, and he would have probably done that if his hands weren't nailed down. This is how evil this man was. And yet, Jesus was ready to forgive him. Because Jesus isn't looking at us based on how awful we are, but how much he loves us, his overwhelming love. And this is grace uh, unleashed on, on him. And, and you know what? He, he shows us it's never too late. I mean, he only had a few hours left to live. And he shows us one more thing, that you don't have to jump through a bunch of religious hoops before God will consider your forgiveness official. Think about this. He never got to be baptized. He never got to take communion never got to join a church. He, he never um, got to put money in an offering plate. He never got to do one single good work. And he shows us what this gospel is all about. Look in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, what it says there. A man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. How about Titus chapter 3, verse 5? He, talking about Jesus, saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. 
Listen, getting into heaven has nothing to do with what we do for Christ, but rather what he has already done for us. Salvation from our sins is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This thief, who had lived according to the motto, what's yours is mine, was forever changed by putting his faith in the Savior who went by the motto, what's mine is yours. Which is the perfect segue into our next backstory. It involves uh, uh, a, a, um, a, a little exchange that Jesus had uh, with the precious woman who had given birth to him and nurtured him up through, uh, to adulthood, his sweet earthly mother, Mary. Now, before we look at the passage, I want to I tip you off about something. You're going to see that there are three women named Mary right there near Jesus, that he, and, and, and they address all three of those. One's, one's Mary, and then one's Mary Magdalene. Mary, his mother, and Mary Magdalene. But it says Mary and her sister Mary. Now, her parents didn't have two daughters that they both named Mary. This is her sister-in-law. This is either uh, you know, her, her uh, deceased husband, Joseph's uh, sister, or married to one of his brothers, or, or this is a woman married to one of Mary's brothers. That's who that is. And then it also refers to the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, that's referring to John. And you'll notice the passage we're going to look at is from the book of John. John did not want to bring any kind of attention or credit to himself. And so he always kind of kept his name out of the dialogue and just referred to himself as this, this close friend of Jesus. And then he identified himself in the closing paragraph of his book, he says, uh, of the book of John, he says, I'm that close, that, that, that close uh, disciple that, that, that I referred to, because he wanted all the glory to go to him. Now, let's look at the passage. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. For 33 years, Mary had served as Jesus' earthly mother. But he was always, he had always been and always was the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And, 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 and he took on human flesh for one reason, and so that he could become our savior and rescue us from the trap that our sin had put all of us in. But as he hung there on a cross, and his life was, was slipping away, he saw his mother, and he realized he had two things he needed to do before he took his last breath. He was the oldest son. His father, or Joseph, that would be, I guess, his guardian, because he wasn't his physical father, but Joseph was deceased. And so the oldest son is responsible to take care of a widowed mother. Now, he had other brothers and sisters because the Bible refers to them. And we know two of their names were James and Jude because they also wrote books of the New Testament. And they could have done it but, but it, but in that culture, the oldest son is responsible. And he wanted to make sure that he carried out that responsibility. So he saw John there and he, he, he said, woman, behold your son. And, and, and he said to him, behold your mother. And he said, you know, he wanted to make sure, please take care of her. But he was doing something else at the same time. He was changing his relationship with her. She was watching him die, and, and, and he was making sure that she, he said, now, now I want you to see him as your son from here on out, not me. Well, then how is she supposed to see him? 
And by the way, you can tell that he was doing something unique here because look at how he addressed her. He didn't say, Mom, uh, uh, he's going to be your son from here on out, or Mother. You would think he would say it that way, but he said, Woman. This wasn't a sign of disrespect. He wasn't speaking to her from his position of a son. He was speaking to her from his position as God, as as a second person of Trinity. And he said, woman, here's your son. And and, and so he said, don't see me anymore as your son. So how is she supposed to see him? From here on out, see me as your savior. She was changing. He was changing that relationship with her. And so the story had come full circle. 33 plus years, 33 plus a month earlier, the angel Gabriel had appeared to her. She was this young virgin teenager engaged to be married to Joseph. And he said, you're highly favored. And God has has singled you out and he wants to put uh, 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 his, his son in your womb and you give birth to him. And the Holy Spirit will come over you and this will happen. Now look, and she could do the math on what that meant. She was engaged to be married. Now she's going to be pregnant before the wedding. And then the word's going to get around that Joseph's not the father. This is going to have a whole lot of social implications. And the gossip train is going to haunt them. She knew that probably because of who this person was going to be and the role that they were going to play, there was going to be a lot of drama in their life. That was the understatement. She could do that, but she submitted him. In fact, put those three words up there. That, see, she went the same path that the thief went. She had just done it earlier. She, look, look at how she played this out. When, when, when Gabriel had said all this to her, uh, he, she humbled herself. She says, I'm the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And, and, and we know that she acknowledged that Jesus was not just a human being, but he was God, because in John chapter 2, uh, he's now a grown man. He's starting his earthly ministry. This was three years earlier from this incident at the, at the cross. And, and he has his disciples with him, and they're at a wedding up in Canaan. And, and it's a big, apparently a fairly big uh, affair because there's a lot of people there, but they run out of wine. And this is a major social embarrassment. And Mary felt for the people, and so she came to Jesus and said, they're out of wine, please do something. Now look what he said. Notice his, how he talks to her, dear woman. Doesn't say, Mom, what are you up to here? Because she is approaching him, making a request basically like a prayer to God. <laughs> She's saying, I have, a, I have a request, we have a need here, and I know who you are, please help me. And he responded back like, woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. But you know she was perfectly confident in his ability to answer that prayer because she just turned to these servants and whatever he says, do it. And then he turned to water to wine. And then when she, she, she had already put her faith in him as her savior because back when Gabriel had said all this stuff to her and she went into this incredible poetic praise and the very first things out of her mouth in, in Luke chapter one, she said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. She'd already recognized him as her savior. Mary ultimately entered heaven, not because Jesus was hers by birth, but because she was his by faith. And she teaches us another profound lesson. This, her backstory helps us understand this second major point that you need to know, and that is you're never so good you don't need a Savior. You're never so good you don't need a Savior. Listen, living a good life may keep you out of jail, but it cannot keep you out of hell. It can't. 
Mary was his precious pearl, but even she knew she needed a savior. And these two people represent the two extremes of the moral continuum. This unnamed thief was as bad as they come, and Mary was as good as they come. But they both entered heaven precisely the same way, through faith in Jesus. And their stories bring clarification to the two standard misconceptions that, that keep people from making that decision and ultimately keep us out of heaven. We either think we're too bad that God would never extend forgiveness or that we're so good we assume we don't need Jesus' help in getting to heaven. But a bottom-feeding thief and the most revered woman in the world would tell you otherwise. Now, look, I, I don't know where you're coming from. And I, I assume most of you understand this thing and probably have made a decision about this before you got here. But, 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 but there was something major happening on that cross, and it was all about you and me. And, 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 and I hope we're grasping the enormity of the price our sin cost for what Jesus was going through. And what happened right after this shows it, because this all probably happened in the 11 o'clock hour, probably 11.30 to 11.45, and then, and then at noon, it says the lights went out. It went dark. It went from midday to midnight, boom, like this. And it stayed that way till 3 o'clock when Jesus finally took his last breath. Now, this was not a solar eclipse. Those only last seven and a half minutes. This was darkness. God shut out the lights. Why? Well, we know that darkness represents judgment. We saw this in the book of Exodus when Israel was, was being oppressed by Egypt and, and God had raised up Moses to deliver them out, but Pharaoh was resisting and God brought these plagues on him. The ninth plague was darkness and he brought darkness over Egypt for three days, followed by the last plague, which was the death of their first, firstborn son. And now, so, so, so judgment was now coming down over this, this scene. But it wasn't judgment on these thieves. It wasn't judgment on the soldiers that nailed him down or, or the people that were mocking him. It was all on Jesus. The judgment that you and I deserved was now dropping down on him, and he was carrying the, the, the enormous weight of our guilt and our shame and our sin on him. And he did it alone. He was, he was all by himself there. He'd already been abandoned, but even his own father had to turn his back on him because now he represented sin. And a holy God had to turn his back on him, and he was by himself there. And that's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then when the price was paid, he could say, it's finished. And, and he gave up the ghost and he died. I hope you grasp the enormity of what is going on here. We need to have sermons like this every once in a while to remind us. And you could easily think that, that Tim's delivering a sermon about a thief and Jesus' mother. No, I'm not. They're, they're just backstories. This is a sermon about you and me. It, all of us were involved in this drama these two represent us. Look at what it says in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6, talking about Jesus. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 just to make sure we're understanding this. It's, it says, talking about Jesus, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Which brings us to the third lesson these two backstories teach us. And that is, you can't get to heaven without a Savior. <laughs> you can't get there. Now, I realize this flies in the face of the popular feel-good man-centered assumption that all paths lead to heaven. No, they don't. No, they don't. And, and you know what? It, that couldn't possibly be true. I know we want that because we're trying to, 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 to write, write the script about God in our own image. It doesn't work that way. They don't. The major religions are in diametric opposition to how we get to heaven, especially against Christianity. But there's one unique thing about Christianity. To all the, you take all the other religions of the world, they all believe that if you do certain things, you can work your way there. Christianity stands on and says, no, you can't. None of us can. You've got to have somebody take you there. You need a Savior. That's the only way we can make it. Just two months after this, Pentecost happened 45 days later, and, 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 and the church was established, and Peter was talking, and it's recorded in the book of Acts. And he's and he talking about Jesus. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I like the way Max Licato uh, uh, put it. He said, every path does not lead to God. Jesus blazed a standalone trail void of self-salvation. He cleared a one-of-a-kind passageway uncluttered by human effort. We enter his way upon confession of our need, not completions of our deeds. He offers us a unique-to-him invitation in which he invites and we believe. He works and we trust. He dies and we live. And yet, I know people can come to church, be exposed to the gospel, and still think they can make it on their own. Somehow, there's, there's a chance to, by the way we live. So to, to, to let me kind of close down this discussion here, let me give you an illustration. Let's say that everybody in the world got an email from God, and they knew it was from God. It said, please, uh, on this date, make sure you are in Southern California, down at the beach, by this hour. And bring your bathing suit. Have your bathing suit on. And so every, there's the world, and there are billions of us lined up the beach along the west coast there. And all of a sudden, right at, the, at that hour, uh, an angel appears hovering over the Pacific Ocean. And he booms in this voice that we can all hear, and it comes to us through our ears in our own language. And he said, okay, here's the deal. Behind me a couple thousand miles are the islands of Hawaii, but we've retrofitted them. We've changed them all. They're now heaven. And here's how you're going to get there. You're going to swim. Hands go up all over. What, 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 what? Oh, hey, Mr. Angel, no human being can swim from California to Hawaii. Oh, uh, of course not. I, I forgot to mention. Pay attention now. The distance you swim has nothing to do with how good of a swimmer you are. It has everything to do with how good of a person you are. That's going to determine how far you go. When you hear the cannon, head for the beach, start swimming. All of a sudden, boom, it goes off and everybody's down there. And terrorists are drowning in the surf. And despots are right out there, just a couple, couple feet, and they're down for, and they're drowning. It serves them right. And we go out there and we're just swimming away. And you get out there and people get out a couple miles before they drown. Some a hundred miles before they drown. Some a thousand miles before they drown. There's a small group still making their way, and they get out and they see the silhouettes of the islands before they drown. There's two or three people. They're so good. They actually start to walk up on the beach in Hawaii, and they fall back in the water just shy of it and drown 
But here's the thing that everybody in this room better understand. Nobody walks up on a beach. Not one single person in the world. So whether you drown in the surf in Malibu or in Waikiki becomes a moot point, you didn't make it. But let's say you're going swimming along, you're out there by yourself, and all of a sudden you realize, that's it. I'm, a, I'm, out, of good, I'm out of righteousness. I'm done. I, I, I'm, I can't see anything. I, I didn't make it. But let's say a helicopter's been tracking you the whole time. There's somebody in there watching you. Jesus, he's been watching you. That's as far as they're going to go. And he opens up the side door and he flings something out and it comes down here and lands right in front of you. It's the cross. He says, grab this. I'll save you. I'll save you. Jesus went to the cross because none of us could save ourselves. And you may think you could give that thief's track uh, uh, lifestyle a run for its money, or you think you could actually compete with his mother Mary and how good you are, but it doesn't matter. None of us can make it. And that's why somewhere before we take our last breath, we have to make sure we have dealt with what happened at this epic center story of all history. We need to understand that we're never so bad that we can't have a savior, we're never so good we don't need a savior, and we can't get to heaven without one. But I can assure you that God doesn't know a sinner that he can't love. He doesn't know a broken heart that he can't mend, and he doesn't know a fallen tear that he can't dry. And, and if you're here and you have never placed, made that step to put your faith in Jesus, I want to give you a chance to do that right now. Here's what I want to do. I want to give you a chance to just talk with him. And, 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 I, and I'm going to share a prayer that you can repeat after me in your heart. Now, please, please know something. This prayer is not a magic prayer. It's just words. But if these words reflect what's going on in your heart, God will hear those words. And he will forgive you of your sins. He will set you free of, your, of, 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 of the price that your sins cost. And he'll give you eternal life. And so can I ask everybody in the venues and here, will you please bow your heads, please? Everybody bow your heads. And if you've never firmed up in your heart and made that decision to put your faith in Christ, pray something like this. Dear Jesus, I need you. I know that I'm a sinner. And because of my sin, I'm lost. I realize now that you love me. And you gave your life for me. And so I want to ask you to please forgive me of my sins. Please come into my life and make my life new. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, if you just prayed that prayer, the Bible says they're popping corks in heaven, they're, going, they're, they're celebrating, and they crank up the cool in the gang theme. Celebrate good times, come on. They're excited for you. And so are we. So are we. It's got the Bible. If you prayed that prayer, you know one of the best things you can do? Tell somebody. Tell somebody. I'll be lingering around here. Joe will be here. Other people will be here. So see some people with prayer. Slip on up here. 
We're not going to make you stand out of the crowd. Just slip on through the crowd. Come up say, and say, I, I talk with God here. We'd love to pray with you. Or maybe email the church. But before we let you go and all the venues go, I got I to gotta say one thing. Most of you are thinking, cool. Uh, I got out of responsibility on this sermon because he wasn't talking to me. Because I was already, I'd already put my faith in Jesus. So, oh, great. No, no, please, please, please. If you got a glimpse of the cross and it doesn't overwhelm you, friend, you're not paying attention. You know, you know I was torn. Instead of calling this message, I was torn, but I wanted to, I thought about entitling this message, Wrecked by Grace. Because I think we're drawn to God by love. But when the love is emanating from us, many times it can be put conditions in, in community. But when his grace gets a hold of us, when we see that grace that he showed to save us from our sins, it should wash over us. It should redefine us. We should not limit it to salvation. It should now become the defining feature of how we act. And so if you are wrecked by grace, that means you can't be a grouchy nightmare around people you love. You, you've got to be somebody that's more fun to wake up next to in your marriage. You've got to be somebody that the kids actually enjoy going on vacation with. You've got to be a friend that's an asset, not a liability. You've got to be going to work and making that place a better place for everybody. We, his grace should so overwhelm us that it's, it, we should be so outwardly focused that everybody we come in contact, we can see through the eyes that Jesus was looking at. We don't see how awful they are. They need, they need help. We, we look at them like he looked at that thief and he looked at his mother, that they need him, and, and, and he's available. That's my hope for you. I'm going to let the venue say, uh, I'm going to say goodbye to them right now, but for you all, let me just pray for you, and then we're going to head on our way. Lord, I thank you for everybody in this room. You know their stories, and you know all of our backstories too, the things that are going on, the subplots of our life that maybe nobody else knows, but you do. And you know, we, you know how much we need you, and I'm so grateful you gave everything for us. And so I just pray for every one of these people. I pray that you will, they, they will let you have a position in their life that, that lets you lead, that lets you speak through their life and live through their life. Bless them now as they go their way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.